how come nobody thinks of the home as an organization? We're hearing, you know, now about the life-changing magic of, you know, organizing our junk drawer. That's fine. But what about the life-changing magic of long-term thinking? How come we're not using any of the organizational science we know has worked in organizations for 50 years to create accountability and trust in our homes? Eve Rodsky is a true entreprenista as she transformed a blueberries breakdown into a catalyst for social change when she applied her Harvard-trained background in organizational management to ask the simple yet profound question, what would happen if we treated our homes as our most important organizations? Her New York Times bestselling book and Reese's book club pick, Fair Play, a gamified life management system that helps partners rebalance their domestic workload and reimagine their relationship, has elevated the cultural conversation about the value of unpaid labor and care. Sit back and get ready to take notes. Coming up, you'll hear what it means to make the invisible visible. How Eve's spreadsheet went viral in 2011 before going viral was a thing. Why fair play is not just for women in relationships, but can be applied to any business partnership. And finally, the secret formula to building successful organizations. This is the Entreprenista Podcast, presented by Socialfly. It's the best business meeting you'll ever have with must-hear real-life looks at how leading women in business are getting it done. And what it takes to build and grow a successful company. It's beyond the gram. With no filters. No limits. And plenty of surprises. Eve, we are so excited to sit down with you and have this conversation today. This has been many months in the making, and you have been one of the most requested podcast guests from our Entrepreneurial League community, and we cannot wait to hear all about your journey and story. I'm surprised you didn't get blueberries. Hmm. Tell me how this text led to building this empire that you have now built over the past few years. Oh my gosh, um, who would have known, right, that a a text and then a book that portrays my partner, my husband Seth, in a terrible light, as he says, would have led to starting my second business. This is my second entrepreneurship opportunity. My first was a law firm that we'll talk about. Let's just back up, right? I mean, I think like with so many guests on your amazing podcast that I've gotten to listen to, and my son, Ben, shout out to him. He loves your podcast too, because he learns a lot from, he wants to be an entrepreneur, he learns a lot from you. So I think no one wakes up and says, I don't know, on their third grade, what do you want to be when you grow up project that they want to be an expert on the gender division of labor. <laughs> I mean, that's definitely not what was on that board. I'm sure it was like astronaut or veterinarian, but some things happened into my life. And you said this, the blueberries was a breakdown I had. And we'll talk a little bit about that. After my second son, Ben, was born, how did I turn into an expert on the gender division of labor? My husband, Seth, sent me a text that said, I'm surprised you didn't get blueberries. And that was the first time that I can remember and recall now, this was in 2011, that I had almost like tiny, beautiful things like a Cheryl Strayed, like time to write her a letter, changing of your life uh, moment where I was crying in my car, sobbing. I had to pull over from this text because what it represented to me was that I had a breast pump and diaper bag in the passenger seat of my car at that time. 
I had gifts for a newborn baby to return in the backseat of my car. I had started my first business. This was the first time I had started a business. It was a law firm. And I did that out of necessity because my corporate job was taking me back without direct reports, they told me, and and without a place for me to pump. If I wanted to pump, it would have to be in a broom closet and I had to bring a battery pack because there was no outlet. So I quit. I think a lot of women end up in entrepreneurship because they say they quit, but I'm telling everybody out there that you did not quit. (laughs) You tried your hardest, uh, but you were forced out. And so oftentimes, right, there's a necessity of invention when you feel abandoned by your partner. Again, uh, him sending me this text in the middle of all this chaos of having a newborn baby, of just being pushed out of my job, starting my own business, and then being assumed to be the fulfiller of his smoothie needs, along with racing to get my older son his toddler transition program at that time. That chaos, that overwhelm was what led me down the path of what ultimately Fair Play became. But it started from that day of the realization that not only was I emotionally and physically abandoned by my workplace so that I had started my own law firm, but that my partner, who said he was supportive of this journey, this entrepreneurship journey I was on, was basically saying, well, now I have the stable job. And so if you want to make this work, it has to be on your timetable. And um, on top of it, now that you're home and your job is quote unquote more flexible, you're going to now be responsible for groceries and meal planning and the dentist appointments for our kids and picking them up from school. So my life actually got a lot harder when I became an entrepreneur because we had not negotiated the expectations of all the off-screen work, all that childcare and housework. That's so interesting. So uh, from that moment, you're in your car, you get this text. What did you do next? Well, I think I'm Gen X and pretty type A. So what do we do? We like to start spreadsheets. (laughs) We love Excel. So that's pretty much what I did around that time. I opened a spreadsheet to start to think about what work I was doing for my home. I decided that like Peter Drucker, for anybody who knows him or been to business school, he's a management consultant. One of my favorite quotes is, you know, you can't manage what you can't measure. So I had this idea that maybe it would make sense to start to enumerate what I had learned at that time in my life, because also along with Excel and his laptop, I love libraries. And this is 2011. So there was not AI or even iPads back then, or I definitely didn't have you. There were no podcasts. So I really had no community except for what to expect when you're expecting that just told me my children were like the size of jelly beans, but nobody really told me what to expect when I was expecting was that the entire assumption that I had been living under, that I was living under a fair meritocracy, that my brains and my hustle would get me far was a complete and total fucking lie. That's what to expect when you're expecting, I think it should have been. But ultimately at that time, that research of understanding that what the statistic that I was living, Courtney and Stephanie, the thing that I was living was I was, I was holding two thirds or more of what it takes to run a home and family. That is a statistic I was living, but I had no idea was even out there. I had no idea that there was something called the second shift, emotional labor, mental load or invisible work. But that term 1986, it was coined by a sociologist named Arlene Kaplan Daniels. Reading that article that invisible work that we have to convince women it makes sense for us to take pride in wiping asses and doing dishes 
to think we're better at it, to condition us to devalue our time, to make us think our time's infinite like sand and to guard men's time as if it's finite like diamonds. That's inherently the baseline of living in a capitalist patriarchy. So once I understood that, that invisible work benefited people that didn't look like me, my goal was, well, if I can just make the invisible visible, then maybe everything would change. And so that's where I started. I started with a Excel spreadsheet that I compiled over nine months with women that look like you and all the powerful women in my life that ultimately ended up in 17 countries. It went viral before things could go viral. And it was called the Should I Do Spreadsheet. 98 tabs, 2,000 items of invisible work compiled in nine months. And I thought that that was my answer to make the invisible visible. And then once you had done this, you put together this list, it goes viral. How did you figure out what to do next and how you then evolve this into creating fair play? Well, I think the hardest part for me, and I'm sure everybody who listens to your podcast, right, they know this and you've talked about this in different iterations, right? But case testing things, going out to market to see what's really happening out there, research, those are all really important steps, right? You, you may feel something, but maybe it's not market ready. And so what I found from this journey, which again, was not my business at all, right? My business, my entrepreneurship at this point was running a law firm called Philanthropy Advisory Group. And so I want to explain that that was my day job at this time. My day job was that I work for families that look like the HBO show Succession. And you should all feel bad for me because that's a hard entrepreneurial journey. It's a law firm for really difficult clients. And even though most of the work I do for them is family business work and family foundation work, there was lots of philanthropic emergencies at midnight, right? So, you know, you're on when you're doing client management 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And so that was my day job. But what was interesting to me about this other journey that I was on to basically save my own marriage was that once I compiled this list and I had women like you in my life who were helping me, again, like I said, ultimately it became 17 countries through Facebook and mirrored the U.S. census. But because I didn't have this type of podcast or I didn't have TikTok, you know, there was nothing like this back then. The first time in my life since having kids that I didn't feel alone was talking to women about invisible work. It was women looking at the spreadsheet. I, you know, you, can, you can't make this shit up, but this woman from the Jewish Federation of Arizona, you know, she called me and she was like, I got your spreadsheet from a friend and you don't have Girl Scout cookies ordering in sales under extracurricular activities. <laughs> I was like, oh my God, thank you. How many hours is that? Well, that's about 15 hours. Okay, I'll put that in there. Other women coming to me and saying, under your medical and healthy living tab, Eve, I really appreciate that tab, but I don't see the application of sunscreen. And I'm like, oh, no, it's there. It's just, it's line 72. You just have to really scroll down. Oh, yeah, well, I see it there, but it says two minutes for application of sunscreen. But what about the 30 minutes for the chase? And I was like, oh, yeah, 30 minutes for the chase. So having this community of women in my life meant to me that I knew that there was something there, that the overwhelm, the community, the connections I was making, I didn't know if I'd be able, of course, to make that in a business one day, but I knew I didn't want to lose those women. And so ultimately, when I sent that spreadsheet to Seth, the should I do spreadsheet with zero context, just a funny, you know, can't wait to discuss with a heart uh, emoji or whatever. I always have to add the emoji yes, for context. Exactly. <laughs> Smile, heart. 
But when I got his response, which was just the early versions of the pixelated emojis of a monkey covering its eyes, and I realized that the shit I do spreadsheet was actually more for me. It really had nothing to do with Seth because lists alone don't work. They never have. Women have been making lists for hundreds of years since the Industrial Revolution started. We've been making lists. And so I knew at that point, since a list wouldn't work, that I could either resign myself to doing it all and lose myself in the process. Or as Ali Wong says, the reason women buy diamonds after they have kids is because the light inside of us has died. And so it's to compensate for that. Or I could get my ass in gear and become my own client. So ironically, the law firm I had started because I was kicked out of my corporate job, the expertise that I was confident in, that I knew how to design family systems for the most complex families so they can make organizational decisions without killing each other, that work over 15 years as a lawyer felt very relevant to me in my own home because I started to think, how come nobody thinks of the home as an organization? We're hearing, you know, now about the life-changing magic of, you know, organizing our junk drawer. That's fine. But what about the life-changing magic of long-term thinking? How come we're not using any of the organizational science we know has worked in organizations for 50 years to create accountability and trust in our homes? And I think because I had the first entrepreneurial journey into this law firm work where I start to get really confident and understanding that I uniquely can design family systems, that I was able to take that knowledge and then say, wow, this knowledge that I've been doing in this one business can actually work for my own home. That was the beginning of Fair Play as a business, as a book, as a movement, because I was doing something that no one had ever done. The only people who was talking to people about their home at that point was individual therapists. And that's a very different framework from organizational systems. Up next, the most important practice in your life and organization. So I'm not married and I have not read your book yet, but just curious, how do you approach your marriage now that you've done all of this work? How do you figure out how to divide up responsibilities and have those conversations? Well, really, Courtney, this is a love letter to you. Fair Play is a love letter to you. It's a love letter to women who, even if you're not living in a gender binary, if you're not in a relationship with a man, are still being affected by that because of the assumption of the way you look. Oh, I see, you know, a gorgeous young woman. Um, That woman is going to have children one day and she will not be committed to her career. It is my love letter to all of you who will lose $300,000 a year in the mother motherhood penalty just by looking like you may be a mother one day. It's, you know, my love letter to you because of the fact that businesses related to what quote-unquote women's areas, whether it's women's health, women's mental health, women's unpaid labor, don't get funded because you've talked about that, right? Women don't, we are 2% now of all venture capital. And so I think it's a love letter to you because this gender binary that I was stuck in affected me and my marriage so closely because it was so painful to believe that I was doing different, something different from my single mother who, you know, my father left her when she was pregnant with my brother, that I had a true partner in life. And I think to unravel the fact that I didn't 
And it wasn't really Seth's fault as an individual. It was these structural things that kept coming up to push me back into my place where society basically said, you're allowed to be a parent. You're allowed to be a partner. You're allowed to be a professional. But God forbid, Eve, you want to use your time in anything else. We're going to shame you into um, submission. That is why this is a love letter to people, even if you're not in, in a relationship with a man. But if you're in a relationship with a man, like I was and am, my son said one of the most Googled thing about me, I don't know how he knows these things, but is, is Eve Rodsky still married? And so I am. But the transformation of Seth and my marriage was a secret formula. And the secret formula works for founders too. So you guys, you know, anybody working together out there, I want you to know that a successful organization, whether it's entrepreneurs working together as co-founders, or you're in a relationship or you have a roommate, there is a secret formula for how you can start building successful organizations internally, externally. And that really is a combination of a practice of boundaries, systems, and communication. So again, that's what changed my life. And it was understanding with Seth that systems may come easiest for me. I was able to design a system based on ownership. So when you're part of a family system, the goal is that people own certain things. Fair play became a card game. It's 100 tasks, 60 if you don't have children, you're living with someone, and you add 40 if you have kids. So for those of you who don't have kids, just remember that. 40 cards are added to your plate if you have children. And that card game is that when you hold a card, you own it. It's not about 50-50. It's about ownership. And that also works in, in the workplace too, because organizations often fail us. And when founders come together, they think they have three toxic words that couples often do. And those words are figure it out. We're going to figure it out. Nobody ever figures anything out. You need boundaries around what your time is, what your tasks are, what you're willing to do, what you're not willing to do. Hey, can you help me with that bill? I don't have to. No, I can't. That's your job. That's your role. That's the boundaries piece. Systems are already knowing in advance who's doing what so you don't get those. Hey, can you just come with me to that meeting or help me? No, can't. And then communication is rules around engagement with each other. And so often we're looking at communication so transactionally. Like Stephanie, I'm talking to Courtney to get better, you know, to, to tell Courtney, like I, she needs to be on, log on to the podcast five minutes early. But really what we're here to do is say, like, I'm talking to Courtney not to tell her something, but I really talk to Courtney to get better at talking to Courtney. If we can look at communication that way, right? I'm talking to Seth to get better at talking to Seth. How can I do that? Well, he says, I come at him with feedback in the moment. He says, I sound like a nails on the chalkboard. I say, oh, he always avoids every hard conversation and he's hiding whenever I want to talk to him, right? Those are the patterns that you can acknowledge and say, we can do things differently. I can get better at talking to Courtney because I know that she's really a morning person. I'm a night person, but texting her at 11 o'clock at night is not the best way to get the best Courtney responses or whatever it is, right? So those three things, boundaries, systems, communication is ultimately what I did with Seth, but that can really apply to co-founders or really anybody that wants a life that's not figured out because I promise you, whether it's your entrepreneurial co-founder or your partner, figure it out. Sadly, it just it doesn't work. 
How do you start those conversations with your partner, whether it's your significant other, your spouse, or your business partner, where one of you is ready to jump in and take the framework of fair play and start implementing it, but the other person has no idea what it is and you want to start having those conversations? Like, how do you broach that conversation and start executing? Well, I think that's the hardest part. The hardest part for so many women and actually co-founders too, because that's been a fun cohort for me to to watch in the fair play journey because they use a version of the, of the cards we're sort of prototyping for co-founders. And so hopefully I'll come back on the podcast and we could do a fun exercise around that once I have that prototype set for fair work as opposed to just fair play. But I think the hardest part is for people to understand that just because you're the oppressed doesn't mean you, you don't have to say something. So, so many women will say to me, well, I don't want to bring up this conversation. It's not my problem. I'm the one doing it all. Like Seth should be the one bringing this up. Well, Seth sent me a fucking monkey emoji with his eyes covers. He wasn't going to bring up this conversation. And so often it's the person who feels oppressed or that things need to change that have to initiate the conversations. And I think once you realize that that's okay, and you can be a game changer in your own marriage or your own partnership or your own business, then things change. And so I think that's why it's boundary systems and communication. Because the system's easy. Like I said, ownership is easy. The reason why my Aunt Marion's Mahjong group, I'll just tell you, has more clearly defined expectations in the home, you don't bring snack twice to that group, you're out, is because, not because systems are hard. We know, I'm not going, hey, Stephanie, like, um, I'm going to work for you, but I'm going to ask you every single day, what should I be doing today? I'm just going to wait here to tell me what to do. No. I'm not going to be working for you long. We understand the ownership. The systems part was easy. The hard part, especially for women, is the boundaries and the communication. Because we've never been taught to ask for what we need. We've always been taught to absorb and to take it on. And in fact, boundaries are really hard because so many women, especially type A women, have told me that availability is literally tattooed into their identity. And I know this because I've done many experiments with women, including asking them to close their eyes and picture the school calling of one of their kids and not picking up. And these women are telling me they're getting a stress response just from that, the picturing of it. You know, I'm like, what do you mean your heart's pounding? Just the picturing of that. Availability has become part of our identity. And so how can I tell you to ask? How can I tell you to even initiate these conversations if you don't believe that you deserve as much permission to be unavailable as your partner or your co-founder. And this happens a lot in women and in cross-gender co-founder issues, actually, where men and women, women are, again, these these horrible, nasty assumptions come up that somehow women are better at design. So I had a a company that was grounded in science where the woman co-founder said she's responsible for all design decisions for the office. Because she's a woman, she, she has better taste. She doesn't want to be spending her time on that, you know, but they didn't want to, they didn't want to afford or, or, you know, pay interior designer. So things like that come up all the time. And we can only break it by understanding that it's not the systems that are hard to ask for. It's really understanding that you deserve to be unavailable. So you have a boundary around your time. You deserve time choice over how you use your day. That boundary is the hard part. And then the communication is the hard part. So what I would say is start with those 
the system is easy once you understand that you deserve both of those things. So one of the things I say is you can either start with a boundary by saying my time is diamonds. Say that to yourself a hundred times. Really question, think about whether you really believe it or really think about communication with somebody else. And the number one thing you could do that all the people and successful fair players in their practice do is recognize communication is a practice. If that's one thing you take away from today, whether it's for your co-founders out there or your partners, if that's one thing you take away, then I've been successful because we emailed a thousand people on social media to ask them what their most important practice was. I like to ask open-ended questions that are a little confusing to people. Some people did not know what that meant, but I will tell you that the majority of things that came back were in the realm of some sort of meditation or exercise. And I'm here to tell you that the most important practice for all of us, as we said, I said earlier, is our communication. And if we don't look at it as a practice, we're never going to do it. So the check-ins, being able to say, I'm going to practice communication with you, Courtney, we're going to sit down every Tuesday night. We'll come with cookie dough, I don't know, an edible, whatever, you know, whatever short-term reward substitution, that's what we call it in behavioral economics, short-term reward substitution, anything fun to do something hard. So come with the wine, come with the chocolate. We sit down every Tuesday at four as co-founders, we check in because we know then our emotion is going to be low, our cognition will be high, and I'll bring everything I need to talk to Courtney about to that check-in. That's going to work a lot better than if I'm giving Courtney feedback in the moment every time that something's happening. We can't do that. And so learning and, and regulating how we come at people, how we communicate, especially for women, I think is a very important skill. So that's what I would say. I would say we start with the communication, recognize that you don't want to come to your partner with a system that they've never heard of if, you've not, if you're not used to communicating in a regular cadence. So the first thing I would say is you have to start practicing that communication and just say to your partner or your co-founder, let's practice doing something differently. I think it's inefficient that I'm communicating with you on Slack 20 times a day. I could probably do that like five times a day. But if I come to you with a check-in every week, then we can talk the high-level things and I'll hold those things that I'm bringing to you on Slack that are probably inundating you and distracting you during your day. And we'll talk about it then. Nobody's going to say no to something like that. That is such great advice. Thank you for sharing that, Eve. And I, I have some homework to do. <laughs> yes, yes. We all do. <laughs> Nobody checks in with each other. It's the strangest thing. Uh, and I, I know that over 10 years of data. It's, it's so strange because I feel like it should be so natural, but no one does this. Nobody does this. Yeah, I think something that I've learned just in the co-founder relationship with Stephanie is that communication is really important. And we hired a business coach many, many years ago that helped us with a lot of the things that you're sharing. But what's been interesting, and this is unusual for co-founders, is since 2020, we split up the businesses. And now there's Entreprenista and there's Social Fly. So that requires check-ins because we're not in the day-to-day, -day, we're not in each other's way necessarily like you know when we're when you're running one business so very very interesting stuff and it's also very fair play right it's very fair play that what you decide to do is say I'm going to take full ownership of one thing and you're going to take full ownership of the other that is something if I was your business coach I would have recommended it's a lot easier to split things that way than to uh, sort of all dig deep into everything because then you can't 
the buck doesn't stop with anybody. And so I call that the both trap, right? If you both do everything, you're both doing nothing. And that happens a lot uh, in business, but it also happens in the home too. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. As Courtney mentioned, when we hired our business coach years ago, she really helped us learn how to communicate together because we were so young. We were in our early 20s when we started our business and we were growing up in life and in business as our business was growing. And communication really was absolutely everything. And we learned from her, how do we make these lists, not just make the list, but then actually take take action on them. Because as you said, you know, you can have all the lists you want, but there actually has to be a, a real system and a real plan. Again, you can have the best plan in place, right, Stephanie and Courtney, but the most important thing is, is, as we were saying earlier, the practice of it, right? I can have on my board, on my like cork board here, like that I'm going to exercise three times a week, right? But that practice is only good as um, me getting off my ass to do it, which I rarely do, right? So I think the beauty of understanding, just remembering that emotion is low, cognition is high, conversations is really the only time people can hear you. Keep remembering that because it's so easy to shoot off a text. It's just easier in the moment. You don't have to deal with someone's ire. You can just get it out of your inbox or away. But again, when we do asynchronous communication like that, it's hard. A lot of people use asynchronous communication now or or synchronous on, again, a device like a Slack or text. There's still nothing that can substitute for a weekly, a monthly, a daily, whatever your cadence needs to be, that type of face-to-face on Zoom in person, that type of check-in. Unfortunately, it's just, we know that now. And actually another really interesting study for founders that I think is important, and also I use this a lot for couples, other people in your business, so again, the check-ins should be for employees too, not just staff meetings, but allowing people to have a regular cadence with you. We now know that as you grow in your business, you're less likely to see what's happening on the ground. There's middlemen who want to protect you from what's happening on the ground because they want you to think everything's going perfectly. The most important thing for a successful business is for founders, for people to be able to hear bad news and to get that bad news fast. As you grow, it's harder to get to the bad news. We know that when you're in a regular cadence with a co-founder or employees of emotion is low, cognition is high conversations, there is a new study that shows you're more likely to hear bad news, which is one of the most important things that uh, we all need to hear. And so I love that because I want to hear bad news from Seth, you know, or what I, you know, the things that I could do better, but he's much more likely to tell me those things. Well, he's, more, you know, we're all likely to lash out eventually when our resentment is so high, our resentometer is 10. But if you want to hear them in a productive way, you do the more frequent check-ins. Totally. Nothing good happens in the heat of the moment in a stressful situation, for sure. Coming up, how Eve secured a partnership with Hello Sunshine and the craziest thing that has happened to Eve in business. Eve, tell me about the process of writing the book and how did your partnership with Hello Sunshine come to be? Such a great question. This is about authenticity. And I think it's really important, right? If you're going into something saying, it's not, I don't think vision boards are bad, right? But I didn't go into, you know, again, my life in third grade saying I'm going to write a best-selling book about the gender division of labor. But I think the authenticity of being able to use those life experiences Knowing my first job so well, 
that I knew I was coming at an age old problem in a new way. So even if people said, this is weird, nobody gives a shit about chores, women are doing fine, which they did say to me, you know, over and over again until the pandemic. And now people are like, okay, you're right. But it was understanding that, and this is a, comes from a Rosa Parks quote, that if your mind is made up, the fear diminishes. And my mind was made up that I could do this differently than anybody could ever do this. And so because I knew that, I started with my prototype, which was the Fair Play system, before I knew it would be a book. And I started my own cards and I was having all these beta testers, again, really all over the world. And so the CEO of Hello Sunshine, who was a friend before she was at Hello Sunshine, was a beta tester. Sarah Hardin became a beta tester of the system. And it was really working for Dave and her. And she had never seen organizational management principles, even though she's been at Harvard Business School and in many management positions used in the home. And so we came together and she said, you know, if you're going out, I had an agent at the time. People told me that nobody wants a book about housework and chores, but I was pushing it forward. And then Sarah said, like, I think this is so novel that I want to go out to market with you. And so that's what happened. Hello Sunshine became a joint venture eventually with me. And so that became Fair Play. And so this this movement is sort of the CSR arm of Hello Sunshine. This idea of that women's time is diamonds. Time equity has become a big piece of what we're all doing on the philanthropy side of things now, whether it's fighting for time equity and that women deserve childcare, fighting for time equity and that women deserve paid off, paid leave. So they have time choice to take care of their kids and still remain in the workplace, fighting for paternity leave so that unpaid labor doesn't just fall on women. All of those bigger goals gets to happen because I have the platform of Hello Sunshine behind me. How did you know how to negotiate that agreement with Hello Sunshine? You were coming with this whole idea. They were coming with resources as well. Any advice you can share about going through that process? Well, I am an M&A lawyer, so maybe go to law school is a good, good idea. <laughs> I think being a lawyer has been very helpful to me in my career. I'll just say that. Being able to read a contract and be able to negotiate a contract is a skill set that is priceless. For those of you who are not lawyers, I will just say having a good business attorney by your side, you may not think you can afford it, is the most, I think, the most important person in, in your arsenal because it's so easy up front, and you've talked about this on this podcast um, in different iterations, but it's so easy up front when you think you have nothing to give it away. Actually, I, I saw um, Bethany Frankel. Yes, she had a really, uh, I saw a, an article with her and she talks about when she was quote unquote a nobody, she calls herself that, Bravo or whatever Real Housewives wanted a piece of all the businesses she was going to create later on. And she's like, no. And now they force all of their Real Housewives to sign that clause that they get a piece of all their businesses. But it's because of, they call it the Bethany clause because she said, no, I'm not going to give you a piece. Because when you have zero, it's much easier to give away and you think you're giving away zero. And that's how, unfortunately, later on when you're successful, you realize you own 3% of your company and it's devastating, right? So for me, it was about, and I had privilege because I had my other, my other firm. So I was still doing my day job of getting cash. And so it's always great to have cash. So the law firm was subsidizing, subsidizing my salary. So with Hello Sunshine, actually, I didn't take any salary. I didn't take any payments. I just took equity. Again, that that's very much uh, someone of privilege who can do that, who's already had a business 
A lot of people need money. They need a salary. But I was able to just take equity. And then later on, that was very helpful to me as um, some, you know, as sales happened along the way. Looking back at your entrepreneurial career, can you share or think back to one of your most crazy moments? Yes. I mean, there were so many crazy moments. Uh, starting my own law firm was a, was a crazy moment for me um, because, you know, I'd never been an entrepreneur before. So I didn't even understand like, what does billing mean? Like I have to like set out my own invoices. All the small things were really hard for me because I'm definitely a big thinker. So those were really hard for me. One of the funniest thing was having one of my clients email me literally two years into my law firm life and say, you haven't billed me for two years. And I was like, oh my God, you're in my like client software. And I have like 72 hours billed, but I had not sent out an invoice to this client, you know, things like that. And I was like, what is happening? Like, how did I forget that? So very hard for me to manage this, those small details, which was embarrassing to admit that some of those details were really, were really hard for me. Not the funniest thing, but I think the image I have of myself in New York City before the pandemic, right? And this is right after Trump was elected, like 2016. I decided that there was power in seeing the problem because no one was believing me that women were burning out from shouldering unpaid labor, right? No one was believing me because we're graduating from college more than men and men are the ones who are having problems in our society. And so no one was believing me that there was this zeitgeist out there that I, that I kept saying, we are one crisis away from losing 30 to 40 years of women's labor force participation. I didn't think that crisis would be a global pandemic, but I did think it was going to be this burnout crisis I was seeing in women across all socioeconomics, intersection of, of their race and class and in different countries. So I decided to print out binders. And so when I started to go see agents, who didn't believe me that I should be signed because I'm just a random lawyer with this solution was I had this huge backpack and I had literal binders of articles saying like about the second shift, about emotional labor, about women burning out. That was my vision of not coming in with my armor or like a Gucci bag and high heels, but having to come to these agents in sneakers because I was carrying the heaviest backpack you can imagine of just binders and binders and binders of articles that I printed out showing that the zeitgeist was moving to understanding that women were done. We weren't going to fucking live like this anymore. And so that I'd say that was probably my, the most fun and most scrappy part of this journey was just sort of walking around New York city, meeting with different agents, most of them who did not want me in my sneakers with my giant backpack. Eve, thank you for <laughs> spending the afternoon with us and sharing all of this incredible knowledge and feedback in your journey. It is so helpful to hear. And I have, I've been taking notes here on this side and have a lot to work on it and implement. And we definitely want to have you back on, especially when your new project launches. And we'll be, we'll be beta testers for you. We can do it live as yes. well on the oh podcast. So let's definitely do that. Final question for you. What does being an entrepreneur mean to you, Eve? Uh, it means what, going back to that Rosa Parks quote, that when your mind is made up, the fear diminishes. If your mind is made up that there's a problem out there that you want to solve, solve it. Go for it. Solve it. When nobody else tells you it's an issue, if you know it's an issue and you feel that in your gut, solve it. Doesn't mean it's going to work. It doesn't mean it's going to be able to be monetized. It doesn't mean it can be 
a business possibly in this sort of capitalist patriarchy that values one year growth, the next year EBITDA, then the next year growth, and the next year EBITDA, and only gives you 2% of venture capital. I'm not saying those things won't happen to you, but I do believe that the first step is having your mind made up. And once that mind is made up, it just you just go for it. You diminish that fear and you say, this is something out there. It's valuable for me. I will devote my life to it. And I think that fire gets us through a lot of the doubt, a lot of the fear. I love it. I, I so agree. Eve, where can everyone find you and follow you? And for those that want to pick up a copy of either of your books, where should they head to do that? So I would say the best place is just go to Fair Play Life. It has everything. Our newsletter is full of research. You can find the cards for free there if you want to see the breakdown of all 100 cards. Obviously, the books are sold wherever books are sold. And then if you want my political rants, that's Eve Rodsky. But everything related to Fair Play is at Fair Play Life. Perfect. And we'll link out to everything in the show notes below. So head over to the show notes if you want to find Eve and head over to her site. Eve, thank you again for being here. I'm Stephanie. And I'm Courtney. And this is the best business meeting we've ever had. Hey, thanks for listening and leaving us a five-star review. We'd really appreciate it. And we'd love to stay in touch with each of you. You can listen to all of our latest episodes at entreprenista.com and connect with us on Instagram at Entreprenistas. We'd also love to invite you to join the Entreprenista League, our private membership community for trailblazing women. You can head over to entreprenista.com forward slash the league. We'll see you there. Wishing you a productive week ahead. Yeah.